Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. The second thing that we um, that we have to do is um, it's going to be challenging for us as soon as you finish the sermon, uh, as soon as you finish that sermon, to kind of think through some thinking and thoughts. And so what I found is it's easier to write those things down and kind of think through it. Um, if you've got 30, pros, 30 or yeah, 30, that's what I said, babe. Uh, uh, yeah, it's higher because I just have a 30 or yeah in front of me. But if that's the case, just Blink one eye and say feet. So just take a picture uh, with your photographic memory uh, and hang on to that. Sasha's feet are starting to get numb. They need a drink. So this morning we're going to be. Um, um, so this morning we're going to be looking at um, John chapter eleven, uh, which is the story of Lazarus, and um, this is a big one. This certainly qualifies as one of them. This is one of the most well-known, most quoted, and probably most powerful um, stories in all the Gospels. Um, so we're going to read together from John chapter 11, and I think we're going to go till about verse 10. There's going to be some verses that we reference and quote within the story that we're not going to read because we would really have to read most of chapter 11 to get it most of the way through. Uh, so John chapter 11, verse 1 says, um, and I apologize because I know Blair said that we can't see any, uh, they can't see on that side of the room at the bottom, so I apologize about that. Brother, just shout it out to the rest of the crowd um, if you're having trouble. Uh, now there was a man who was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, from the village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was the Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment um, and had wiped off his feet with her hair whose brother was ill. So the sisters went to him saying, Lord, look, he whom you serve is ill. And on hearing this, Jesus said, this illness is not unto death, but rather is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister also, and Lazarus, even so, having heard that he was ill, he stayed on at the place where he was for two days. After this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, this is kind of interesting because you've always got these folks in your back. Let's go to Judea again. There's somebody who needs us. 
And his disciples, men full of faith and power, spoke up and said, nope, <laughs> that's a horrible idea because they're going to try to kill you. Are you, are you, do you not remember what just happened? Uh, Jesus answered and said, are there not 12 hours in a day? If one walks by day, he will not stumble because he sees the light of the cosmos. But if one walks by night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And they all went, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Like, this is another example, I think I mentioned this before, but, um, but if I've added correctly, um, Jesus is asked over 200 questions in the Gospels. He gives a direct answer to six. He gives a direct answer to six. Every other time, he either answers with a question or, as in this case, completely ignores their statement and gives some comment that really was just like, what in the heck are you talking about? Like, wouldn't it be weird if you were, if you were like, well, we need to stop and get gas because if we, if on the midst of this travel, there's not going to be a gas station for a while and we're going to end up stranded. And Alistair shows his hand and says, this summer will be hot because the winter was cold. At that point, I'm going to be saying, I have no idea what you're talking about, but let's take you down to the nursery to try to exercise this among the children. Like, that idea makes no sense, but that's what Jesus would regularly do, right? And so, the first thing is context. Again, if you remember... story as we um, come through now the uh, feast of tabernacles remember that jesus over the period of several chapters was during this seven days feast of uh, the feast of tabernacles so everything from him uh, saying to them anyone who's thirsty come unto me and drink from the time that he said i am the light of the world to when the woman was brought to him and uh, that was caught in the act of adultery to the follow-up of that when he healed the blind man. All of this is happening. And if you remember, at least on two separate occasions, he slipped out so that they wouldn't kill him. And so he would then show back up later. He would slip out so they wouldn't kill him. So at the last part of the healing of the blind man, they were so furious that they tried to kill him. Um, in fact, one um, translation actually says they carried him to the cliff to throw him off. Okay. Then another time, it says they picked up stones to stone him. And if you remember, we talked about how that the stones that they picked up to throw at Jesus would have been the same stones that everybody had just dropped when they were getting ready to stone the woman in the act of adultery. So the point of that is, don't be surprised if when you defend the oppressed and when you start saying that this gospel that's good news is good news for everybody and fully inclusive, if those who are the religious gatekeepers don't turn their stones on you. And so they're again on the run. So they've just had this really interesting exchange with a good shepherd exchange. So at this point, Jesus has identified and called out the religious leaders as thieves and robbers that are anxious to come and steal from him. 
so they take off running. Literally, that's the context that the end of chapter 11 is they fled till they reached the stone. Remember, you see, um, and so Jesus, first of all, uh, shows up on the scene out of that temple area because the reality is, as I have found and I'm still learning, in some ways, sometimes you have to distance yourself from religious or with any kind of bitterness or malice, but there is a point where you don't have to stand there like they're stoning you. That's just the truth. So Jesus takes off. We are taking in OSCs. And so as he leaves, um, they, they bring him, um, he's ministering, and they come to him and say, Lazarus that we loved is ill. So there's a few things we need to make clear in this in this story. The first thing that I would like to say as we go into this story, though, is in order to do this well, I feel like that we're going to have to, to some degree, put on the shelf our concept of what this story is about and come at it from another door. Now, before we get too far down that path, the first thing we need to see is that twice in the story, in the story, it says that Jesus deliberately waited. Isn't that weird? Like, your friend, at this point, if I was um, putting music to this, I would say, what about Karen? Never going to forget that. Karen Johnson. Right? So, how, what type of friend is Jesus? Like, if we look at this, Jesus twice in the story deliberately delays his arrival, and he actually allows the death of his friend, not only his friend, but one that they describe as the choice friend. So the first thing we have to do is recognize before we go down too far down that path that we need to define over and over and over again when we hear tragic things. When we hear things that have happened that have no explanation, that break our hearts, we say things or we've heard things like, it must be God's plan. We hear things um, like we discussed last week, that his ways are higher than our ways. That is an absolute, absolute missing of the entire plan of God. The ways of God that are higher than our higher than ours are forgiveness unconditionally and mercy unconditionally, not killing children, not floods and devastation. So the first thing we have to get through in order to come at this from the right mind is we have to lay down the idea that, well, Jesus knew it was God's plan for Lazarus to die. So he's just going to let it happen. let go of the it was God's plan. Because the problem that we really have, if I can say this, I know, is control. Because we are control freaks to the degree that we 
can come up with the fact that if we're going to serve God, that means that I'm not in control. But that still means that God has to be in control. Someone has to be in control. Are you with me? We're, we are such control freaks that we have to have somebody in control, even if that means that something tragic happened that has no explanation and it breaks our hearts. We feel better with the certitude of a God that turns, or a, an answer that turns God into a monster as long as somebody still in control. Because here's why. We're control freaks. To the degree our ego is so hungry for control that we're willing to make God into a monster to say that God is in control because we further believe that if I know the right things to do, the right beliefs and the right answers, then I can manipulate God's control. Like I live into living the right way so that I'll get the right results. So in turn, who's really still in control? We are even. It's absolutely egotistical to the nth degree. So we say these weird things like, well, it's God's plan. Furthermore, I'll, I'll say that the one that actually ticks off all the boxes of bad theology, the man upstairs has a plan. That actually ticks off almost every box of bad theology. We've made God into a male. We've put God somewhere else. And we've said that he's pulling strings that completely get interested with our everyday life. The man upstairs has a plan. Because we're more interested in the certitude than God. We're more interested in belief than relationship. Because relationship brings So the first thing we have to understand is that is not what is happening in this story. It simply can't be. What we have been told is that bad things happen that are out of our control, but we go on to say that it must be in God's control. If this is the case, we are living in an unsafe universe with an unloving God. If that is the case, then God is less less loving than most of us are towards our enemies. If God loves all of us and we're all his children, he cares for the birds that fly and the flowers in the field, how much more will he care for you? If, if this is the truth, that God is pulling the levers of these children who are in cages, that God is pulling the levers of the children who went into ovens at Nazi concentration camps, then the God we say is loving is less loving towards his children than you would be towards your enemies. In fact, in fact, honestly, if you think about it, God tells us to forgive 70 times 7. But then God doesn't hold himself to the same standard. God sends people to hell. So you sin for 20 years, die drunk in a car accident, and God burns you in hell for all of eternity for 20 years of sin. 
And yet we're told to forgive 70 times 7, which means we're not going to forgive anybody. So is God holding us to a higher standard of forgiveness than he holds himself? In fact, this is so basic to our faith. I would suggest that Hitler is not as cool as the guy that most of us this idea of the God who's the punisher, those who were the fathers of the church looked at him and said that Calvin's God, the God that he described, sounded more like the devil than the father of Christ. So, next we have to grapple with the deeper level of what must be happening here. If Jesus isn't saying this story should be a huge question about his plan for our suffering, then what is he saying? Well, first, I would like to add that uh, within the story of the blind man, we have to, in the same way, we're setting aside the literal meaning of the miracle. We're setting aside the literal element of there was a man who was blind and Jesus healed him, and that's wonderful. But I think we have to start with the golden rule in God, that God follows the golden rule. What's the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So God is a God of the golden rule. And so the thing that you have to see within this text is that it is one of the most important stories in Jesus' ministry because it shows us the pattern for God in everything. The pattern that is death and resurrection. Now, to set our framework, we must remember that John is retelling the Genesis story. I've said this over and over and over. Hopefully now it's what you realize. Well, what about John? Is he talking about the Genesis story? He is giving us the picture of what new creation looks like, where Christ is all and in all. And if you remember, we shared that the Gospel of John is broken into seven that model the seven days of creation. Well, interestingly enough, this story, this miracle, is the seventh So this is the seventh. This is the seventh. John is the only one that numbers the seventh. He stops numbering after four, but if you follow those signs, in fact, originally the Gospel of John wasn't called the Gospel of John. It was called the Gospel of Signs. So the idea, though, is of a sign, if you'll utilize how we think a sign works, if we think there's a sign over the door that says exit, Is the sign the point? The door is the point. So, why when we read these stories do we stop at the sign and not go where the sign is pointing us? Does that make sense? You just, it'd be like driving to, you know, Golden Corral. I'm sorry for everybody who's going to go out to church. You pull up and see the big sign and then turn around and go home as if you're full. That's not the point. It's trying to show you something else. It is a sign of something. So interestingly, when you see this, the idea is that John is saying, 
the whole earth is all of creation in the garden over and over and over. So one, Jesus drank water and wine. Two, he heals the official son who's near death. Three, he heals the invalid who's near the pool. Uh, four, Jesus feeds the 5,000 men and the countless women. Um, Excuse me, five, he walks on water. Six, he heals the man who is blind from birth. And seven is this miracle of Lazarus, which, interestingly enough, if you line that up with the days of creation, it matches beautifully. The first six days of creation are God creating the world. Then the first six times, Jesus is performing miracles using and shutting down the world. He uses water to make wine. He uses dirt. story and then on the seventh day jesus is showing the eternal pattern of the entire universe the first day jesus is showing the eternal pattern of the universe jesus is actually showing us that the pattern of the universe is the necessary demand of letting go emptying out and dying so that life Jesus seems to be showing us that sometimes we actually have to let death happen, and we will only get the message after it's happened. Now, once again, we've set aside the literal meaning. We're setting aside the the literal story of Lazarus for the point of what he's trying to show us, because on this seventh day, he's trying to show us what creation is supposed to look like, and he's trying to show us that he gives life. But he is the resurrection that you cannot have until you are willing to die. That's the pattern of the universe. So he's inviting us into this thing because we just don't like death. We don't like letting go. We don't like emptying out. We like certainty. We like safety. We like things that we have answers for. We like um, silos where we can feel protected from anything that would threaten what we think. We like surface relationships that don't have to engage in vulnerability. We don't like being reminded of our privilege. And that's fine. And so what Jesus shows us here is that this idea is that you have to sometimes let death happen. And oftentimes you will only understand what resurrection looks like after you die. This is nearly impossible for the mind that isn't born again to grasp. And born again doesn't mean going to heaven and having a perfect life. Born again means seeing and thinking differently. This is nearly impossible. We actually have to, excuse me, we have to show faith and trust at times by allowing things to die so that they could be raised into life rather than fighting for them and being ashamed and acting mean to them. Death is not just physical dying, but going to the full depths of things, hitting the bottom beyond where you're in control. And in that sense, we'll probably go through many deaths in our lifetime. Thomas Merton called this the principle of dying before you die. These deaths are the small, uh, excuse me, 
to the small cell <laughs> are tipping points, opportunities to see transformation. Unfortunately, the vast majority of people turn bitter and look for something to blame. When we are thwarted, typically external influences force us to make a choice. Rarely do we choose it on our own. step into the transformation of death in a us and God centered resurrection and the life. Whoever has 
faith that we, even though we see God, shall live. And whoever lives has faith in me and shall live. And he's a God. So the idea is, the first thing to understand is, do you realize what she's just done? Because this is probably going to mess with us Westerners. Jesus says, your brother is not dead, but will be raised. And she says, I know this. We all will. So the first thing to understand is that Martha believes in the resurrection of the body in the day, in the great end of things, whatever that looks like. So the entire Jewish people, everybody believes in the resurrection of the body that's going to happen in the end when all things are restored. So Jesus says to her, your brother's going to be resurrected. And she's like, I know that, but that doesn't help right now. as it's guaranteed when we give people that comfort of that word you'll see him in his soon coming it's well intended but um, to some degree I hope for more than that I didn't say I hope for less than that I said I hope for more than that I believe you're with me Ultimately, what the discussion is, you see, the challenge is that the Jewish people thought that it was this resurrection was going to happen all the way down the line. At some point, this was going to happen. And Jesus is saying, well, let me back up. They shared a vision of new heavens and new earth, God's whole new world, a world like ours, only with his freedom and power in hand from sin and ugliness. So God was going to restore all of this. Within the new world, they believed all God's people from ancient time would be present and would be given new bodies and share and relish in the life of new creation. This is what the Jewish people believed. Which, interestingly enough, we might not have been all wrong because if you remember, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, graves opened up and people walked around Jerusalem. them by the sea, presented himself and talked with them for many days, they touched him, Thomas, stick your hand into my side and feel the wounds on my hands. They touched him. So maybe ain't no grave going to hold my body down is a little more accurate than we'd like to give it credit for. Certainly more accurate than left behind where somebody's folding your clothes. So within this new world, this is what the Jewish people believe. But that's not the point. You see, Jesus is not done. He's trying to get them to the thing behind the thing. 
so what Jesus says is he takes the idea of a distant reward because he's just said your brother's going to be resurrected. He takes the idea of a distant reward at the end of the age and he puts it in the now. Because he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now. Not in the sweet by and by. You see, that is the great movement of this story. The great movement of the story is not trying to convince somebody that Lazarus was going to be able to come out of the tomb. They already knew that. That wasn't a revelation. What was a revelation was that Jesus was giving life to death now. It is a new creation. This is the seventh day. The garden is here. The new creation is here. All things are being set right. So Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. Actually, this is a further beauty of the Gospel of John and how wonderful he tells stories because why was it that God called himself to Moses in the wilderness when he delivered the people? He said, who is it that sends me? And, and the burning bush answered, what? And Jesus said, liberation story of God freeing the oppressed, binding up the brokenhearted, healing those who are wounded, setting people free. If we are to speak of miracles, the most miraculous thing of all is that God uses the very thing that would normally destroy you, the tragic, the sorrowful, the painful, and the often unjust supposed to be your death is actually your resurrection. Now, you are then indestructible and there are no absolute dead ends. This is what we mean when we say we are saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is not simply a spiritual transaction, but a human transformation to a much higher level of love. You have been plucked from the flames of any would-be death to the soul, and you have become a very different kind of human being in this world, a human being that is untouchable. When you're willing to be the one that dies, you no longer have to fight being the victim. When you're willing to be the one that says, I'll lay down, I mean, at that, you don't fight with a dead body. So when you're willing to be the one who lays it all down, who doesn't hold to your ego, who doesn't hold to your pride, who doesn't hold to what you want to do, but is willing to lay down who you are, knowing that only in that thing, new life comes, rather than back here trying to preserve, trying to um, manipulate, trying to in some way obfuscate using the power of what you think you know, the answers you think you have, and come back and whacked out absolutely abuse its spiritual authority scheme. You only end up with manipulated and typically temporized lives. But death brings resurrection. See, the interesting thing about this story is that actually what made them so mad about Lazarus 
did really take literature to Tarzan, that it wasn't just the Jesus they knew. It was when Nazareth actually had the ability to raise others. So Lazarus walked and exercised resurrection power because he was resurrected. These things and greater things will you do. That's the point. It's not for you to be the object of God's miracle power. It's for you to be subject and shows us that nothing is the same forever. 98% of your body's atoms die and are replaced every year. 98% of your body dies and is replaced every year. Geologists with good evidence over millennia can prove that no landscape is permanent. Water, fog, steam, and ice are all the same thing, but at different temperatures. Resurrection is another word for change, but particularly positive change, which we tend to see only in the long run. In the short run, it tends to only feel like death. The stone in front of the tomb beautifully illustrates the idea that this thing, there are these things in front of us that would tend to block us. And it illustrates that the things that tend to block us, the stone is not some type of spiritual hindrance. The stone seems to be a symbol of our beliefs, which tend to create hardness of heart. If you look through the Old Testament, what typically in negative form is referred to as a stone? David said, take out of me this heart of So what this idea is, is that we would, this stone that blocks us, the thing that tends to block us is our hard-heartedness because our hard-heartedness says, no, God, it's this way. It has to be this way. People have to come in through this door or do this thing. But every time we encounter somebody who's different than us and we see Christ in them, it invites us for our heart to be made flesh again and us to go to a deeper faith walk. Every time we realize that the gospel is bigger than we thought, it's an invitation. But that invitation does not come without some sense of dying of what you thought. So the stone seems to be a symbol of our system of beliefs. And then finally, Lazarus walks out of the tomb and Jesus commands them to untie him that he might be free. human race 
set free to live into the beauty of this new world, this new creation here now. Here now. Right. The point of the passage is that it's not us figuring Jesus showing us that if we just pray the right prayer and have the right scripture and have the faith praying just right, that we'll have the power to raise dead bodies. In most cases, what we're really asking is the power to raise dead bodies, is that actually how it works? We know that we were created to avoid our own So what this is about is not that a story saying, well, you're so and that. This story is that resurrection is pure power. And Jesus is saying, set the world right. God is at work in this place, meaning in the universe. And in that way, the entire human race is not just being given eternal life. If I can be really honest with you, that's not a very good promise that we've been given as a culture. If you pray this prayer, somewhere else, sometime else, you'll get a heavenly reward. Jesus says it's here and now. And he doesn't just raise Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.